Welcome to Recovery Corner, where the many pathways of recovery intersect. We believe that recovery should be defined by each individual on their own unique journey. We also welcome allies of recovery to the conversation as we know that substance use disorder impacts our entire communities, not only the people experiencing addiction. This is a space where you will hear personal stories of triumph in recovery, gain insights into various recovery-oriented systems, and learn how leaders across the country are building recovery-ready communities. Recovery Corner is brought to you by Young People in Recovery, otherwise known as YPR. YPR is a recovery support service organization that engages people in and seeking recovery, as well as allies of the recovery movement to take a stand for recovery. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Recovery Corner. I'm your host, Candace Rose. And I am Jesse Hainer coming from Sacramento. Good to see you, Candace. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing lovely. It's a beautiful day out here in Colorado. Oh, yeah. Are you? Cal- California is good too. Uh, sun's going away, a little bit less hot, so I love it. But uh, I'm excited today on Recovery Corner. We have a friend of mine, a personal friend of mine from Sacramento, uh, Folsom to be exact. My friend Richard Morales is on the show, um, and we'll hear his experience of recovery. Richard, welcome, and thanks for being here, bud. Thank you. It's great to be here, Recovery Corner. Uh, like I said, like you said, we've been friends for a long time, and yes, it's good to it's good to uh, definitely be with you all today to share my story and uh, help people stay uh, free. Yes, I love it. Yeah, Richard, I think God has it. It's been over two years already. Yeah. Yep, two and a half years. Two and a half years. It's just the time is just uh, oh my fast so fast. I remember uh, when I first met you. Uh, it's just been kind of a common common bond mm-hmm. since. We don't talk a lot, but we're always connected. That if that makes sense, you know, it's always kind of we just pick up where we left off. So thanks again for being here. We met at a, go ahead, Rich, go ahead. Well, the, he may have his story, but I have mine. I, I met him at 12 days. <laughs> Two sides to every story, isn't there? <laughs> 12 days after coming off of a, of, of a 25 to life sentence in prison. Um, and uh, I was at a transitional house and they invited us all to go to a, a recovery group. Um, and um, so we went over there and it was called uh, Project Heal in, in uh, Oak Park in Sacramento. And uh, so I attended the meeting and, and that's where I met Jesse. It's a big, big, charismatic, uh, redheaded dude and uh, <laughs> the personality of the world. I said, man, I like that guy already. Come He's on. hard not to love. I met him at our YPR National Leadership Conference a few years back, and he was definitely somebody that I was drawn to. And um, yeah, He's a bull in a china shop in the best of ways. Fine China. Turn that guy loose. And, and, that's uh, it. <laughs> Fine China, man. Well, you guys are making me blush. Our, our, our listeners can't see it. I'm already redheaded and a ginger, but I'm even more red when you guys boast about me. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate that. And I love you both, man. So thanks so much. Um, so, yeah, I met Richard at Project Heal. And uh, like I said, it was just kind of one of those instant meets where we're just for friends. Like I've known him for a long time. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, it's just one of those one of those cool things. And we've been doing some uh, outreach together. He's been a few of our outreaches for YPR with uh, our houseless and homeless outreaches. And he's just kind of hit the ground running. And I don't want to get too much into it. Uh, I'm going to let Richard tell his story, but he is the director of communications for the crop organization. 
super dope project they got going on here. Uh, I'm going to let him tell more of his story. All of his, all of his achievements, you've already heard it. He did 20, uh, 25 years in prison on a life sentence. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, if this guy's doing a life sentence, how is he on a podcast now? And uh, we're going to hear about that. We're going to hear about his journey and also his organization. And so, uh, Richard, with that being said, uh, please take it away. Tell us, uh, I guess we'll start your background from the beginning, where you're from and, uh, you know, what it, what the events took place to kind of lead to, uh, I guess, substance use and, uh, how it kind of took a hold of you and, you know, all that jazz. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, I actually did 21 years of a 25 years to life sentence. Um, wow. and nobody in my family had ever been to prison. Um, I think, uh, a lot of the stigmas out there, you expect someone to come out with tattoos all over their face or, or, you know, talking a different type of language and you won't get that here. And it's largely because of uh, my personal transformation, but I grew up, I grew up pretty poor, um, born in Bakersfield, California to a single mom. Um, and after about a, I was about a one year old, uh, she moved us to Merced, a town in the central Valley. And uh, we lived in the housing projects, like I said, pretty poor. Uh, my father wasn't around. Um, and uh, so my mom did the best to raise me. And uh, five years later, my little sister came around. And up until about the age of 10 and a half, I mean, life was good. I mean, even though I, I didn't really realize we were, we were poor, I just thought, you know, cornflakes and quesadillas was a, a common staple <laughs> to get that welfare cheese. Shout I, still, out to I still think it's some of the best cheese out there. <laughs> Shout out to cornflakes and shout out to quesadillas, man. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I still top, top ramen is a specialty staple uh, where we're from, sir. Absolutely. Yep. After about 15,000 top ramens, I think I'm, I'm good on those. I haven't had one in two and a half years. But uh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Ramen's all bougie these days. People are like all about that ramen. Well, yeah. I can imagine after 22 years of ramen for Richard in, in, the, in the California. It's a little different. Season, yeah, it's a little yeah, different was, for people, I guess. I was actually uh, sharing with Jesse earlier that, uh, you know, um, uh, and I won't take a stance either way, but there's a, actually, uh, this is crazy, but in, the, <laughs> in some correctional systems, they're offering them uh, like, you know, a couple hundred ramens to take the the COVID shot. I mean, a couple the, hundred ramens. What? Yeah. Wow. So, uh, you know, they, That's what's on the chopping block. <laughs> wow. It's definitely the, the, the main... Um, Staple that people eat in prison because it's filling. Uh, it's yeah. so fascinating, like how your values change and you know when you're incarcerated, like what yeah. what's important to you. Yeah, uh, that's hilarious. Yeah, sorry to cut you off. No, it's good. <laughs> yeah, sidebar there. So yeah, but about about um ten and a half years old or so. Um, I loved school. I liked my teachers. I'd walk to school, um, and like I said, I was. Me and my mom were very close. Me and my grandparents were very close. Um, my little sister, the friends in the neighborhood, riding bikes. I mean, uh, it was just, um, I guess, normal. Uh, I didn't. I never felt like I was out of place. And uh, I had some good teachers. Uh, I actually aspired to be a teacher when I was in elementary school. And But about the age of 10 and a half years old, my mom uh, married a guy who... I never really liked. Um, he was 18 years older and came from a different set of values and backgrounds and a background um, was more of the traditional machismo Mexican, uh, you know, and he had a lot of principles that I didn't get. I was 
I was kind of a mama's boy, you know, attached to her hip. If she was cooking in the kitchen, I was in the kitchen with her. If she was sitting on the couch, I'll sit next to her watching TV. And uh, where she went, I went. And, you know, he thought that wasn't manly. And he thought boys belong outside and girls belong out inside. And, and um, uh, you know, I should know how to fix bikes and cars and and um, mow, mow lawns and stay out till night doing uh, chores. And may, may, maybe those are good principles to learn. And maybe he was trying to teach me in hindsight uh, uh, some early principles on what it meant to be a, a man. But there wasn't an there wasn't affection with it. There wasn't. I don't remember him saying happy birthday, Merry Christmas, I love you, giving me a hug, anything like that. Um, and then everybody always chalked it up as, you know, that's how he was raised. And, and it was like an excuse, right? I mean, it's not too hard. If you want to change, you can go and give somebody a hug and you can tell them I love you. It doesn't matter how you were raised, but uh, there was always an excuse for him, but no excuses, no excuses for me. I felt like, you know, I, I had to be the one to change and he wasn't. Looking back now, I know that my mom was doing the best that she could and trying to make a marriage work and she did love him and, and it lasted, I think, 10 years or so. Um, so, um, and she's happily married now for 20 plus years. And, and but back then um, I was transitioning to the sixth grade and I didn't like his ways. I felt like he was separating me from my mom. I felt like he had stolen my mom from me. I felt like she was losing her identity in the way that I could stay with my grandparents every weekend before. Now I couldn't. And um, uh, he was like, well, you don't want to be a bother to them. And it was no bother to them. And they wanted me over there. So I, I can remember it all started for me getting into drinking and drugging a sixth grade bus, bus stop, you know, sixth grade bus stop on the way to L uh, junior high school and the eighth graders over there smoking pot. And um, I'm looking over there and they look like they're having fun. And, and uh, I go over there and they, they, they introduced me to my first uh, toke of weed. So Smoke, smoking yeah. weed at the bus stop. Yeah. Yeah. That was the first that was the first one. Yeah, I think every uh, sixth, seventh, eighth grade has that. Uh, for us, it was a, it was the big tree. We call it the big tree. That's where everybody hung out and uh, partook, if you will. So that was uh, you said seventh grade or eighth grade? Sixth grade. Oh, sixth grade. Wow. OK. <laughs> yeah. And uh, for me, it was just a way to 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 be rebellious. Um, I remember, I, you know, I wanted to rebel against everything he had to say because, uh, you know, I didn't feel like he loved me. So I wasn't going to love you back. And I remember, you know, trying to actively break up that relationship because, um, like I said, I felt like he had taken my mom from me and all the affection <laughs> and attention and acceptance that I had before was seemed like to be dwindling and soon to be gone. Yeah, it sounds like too. Uh, I mean, just like classic toxic masculinity going on there too, with you know, sort of putting you into these gender norms and pressuring uh, with like not being able to express your emotions. You know, a lot of that can create frustrations and cause us to act out. So, um, you know. yeah, definitely. You know, um, <clears throat> definitely toxic masculinity going on there, and. I didn't know it at the time, but if I ever did, you know, scrape a knee or, or get in a fight, it was, you know, Hey, you know, snap out of it. You're okay. Um, just chalk it up as, you know, something that, that you're, you're just supposed to be tough. And 
So, I mean, there's a, there's a word for it. You know, you guys, you guys are in recovery to get them uh dual diagnosis. Uh, what do they call it? A uh, comorbidity. Uh, you have uh, the book called a uh, DSM five. I think they have a DSM five out now. There's a word in there called alexithymia. And, you know, <laughs> a is without Lex is the lexicon, like a dictionary and thymia is the inability. And it, uh, and it, it literally uh, occurs a lot in most men, the inability to put your emotions into words. And that's where it starts in those early ages where, you know, you come in and it oh, hurt my leg. And, and it's like, <gasps> you know, you try to, and they tell you, hey, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about or, or something like that. So you suck it up. And Oof. later on, it transfers to relationships, to adulthood and the ability, inability to put your emotions into words. And that's why today, if you ask most men, you know, what, how you doing? And how, how are you? Or you could even get more specific. How are you feeling? And then what will they say? I'm good. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm all right. I can't call it. Yeah. There's 128 feeling words and none of those are yeah. feeling words. Yeah. So, um, and I think that's, that's a lot of the reason why, but that's where it started for me. Um, uh, drinking and drugging. And I can remember just all throughout um, junior high, high school, hanging out with different crowds. I was kind of the, the chameleon. I could hang with the, with the, with the gang members, or I could hang with the, with the jocks, or I could hang with the preps, or I could hang with the stoners, found a way to, to fit in with everybody and uh, try to be the life of the party. And, um, but it wasn't until halfway through my senior year that I got introduced to meth and uh, already had been getting, had started drinking both sides of my family, uh, people drink, uh, and, and they drink till three or four in the morning. And I could never figure out how, how are my aunts and, you know, these, and all their friends drinking till three or four in the morning, man, I have like six, eight beers and I'm growing up outside, <laughs> you know, how are they drinking all night? So, um, you know, maybe there was some, a little bit of a uh, meth action going on behind the scenes that I didn't know about, maybe some cocaine or something, but, uh, halfway through my senior year, a guy entered one of my, uh, long-term friend said, Hey, you want to do a line? And I said, what is it? He said, crank. And I said, I'm good. And then he said one line that I can remember to this day. He said, uh, if you, if you do this line and it was no bigger than that, you know, and he said, if you do this line, um, you can drink all night. You can drink, you can drink a case of beer and not really be drunk. And that was enough for me. I'm like, sign me up. So I remember doing it. And, um, after that it was, I try to get it every weekend, mm-hmm. um, you know, every, every weekend, um, I, I, my senior year, I was trying to make up classes for when I dropped out. I eventually ran away when I was 14 years old, uh, uh, from my mom's house with her husband and half halfway through the first semester of my ninth grade year. And then moved in with an aunt, moved in, ended up finding my biological father in New Mexico, moved in with him. And what happened was, um, I ended up coming back my senior year and moving back with my mom. And so I had to make up all those classes from the ninth grade. And so I'd go to zero hour. I'd go to school uh, for an hour after school. Then I worked a job at Red Lobster. So that meth kind of helped push, push me. And I just kept it a secret from family. And um, it was kind of acceptable to, to drink underage, but it was not acceptable to do drugs. That's a little bit of the first leg of the journey and I'll take you to the next, but maybe you have uh, anything. I'm, I'm curious. Um, so I'm in recovery, but methamphetamines were not something I dabbled in, but I've worked with people that struggled with methamphetamine use disorder. Um, and so I'm like curious, like, how did you keep that a secret? 
Um, uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's definitely one of those because I'm not an avid. When I use, I'm a, I'm a, I was a methamphetamine user myself for about 14 years, and I'll just say this: I didn't do it well. It sounds like Richard, you kind of maintained um, that use, and I, I love what somebody I heard this in a in a meeting one time, and I, I, he said, "I don't like the term." functional addict or functional alcoholic i'm just i'm just quoting what they said um he said i was good at prolonging the inevitable a little bit better than you right so it sounds like you were pretty good at prolonging the inevitable like you kind of dabbled but it seems like you kind of maintained is that is that sound about right yeah it was i just kept it to weekends and wow. my mom had a rule if you're not going to be home by midnight then you better be telling me you're going to stay the night at a friend's house so what I would do almost every weekend in my senior year is say, I'm going to go stay at this friend's house. Okay. And they were pretty, pretty good. They had a pretty good family. So it wasn't a, a big deal. So come Friday night, you know, it was, it was on. And then, uh, you know, I would stop, you know, Sunday and, and that was pretty much how it went until I graduated. Yeah. I guess that's how this I was until uh, your senior year, you said. Yeah. Okay. So senior I, year happens. Uh, did you graduate? Yeah. I ended up graduating. I graduated. I, I tell people that I graduated with a, I graduated, but when they really ask, I graduated 737 out of 777 in my class with a 1.7 GPA over okay. four years. So, you know, they, I guess they let you graduate with a D average over four years. No, I mean, that's pretty impressive in its own regard in some way. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm impressed. Yeah. I have the somehow, offer. somehow I flunked PE. I don't know how I did that. Uh, I couldn't even pass PE. So hats off to you, yeah. Richard, for uh, your 1.7, sir. Yeah, I definitely got shaken a few times for this for the season <laughs> PE. Um, <laughs> but um, it went along with the up. idea. Um, I remember, I remember be hearing things, you know, that about you're not being you're not you're not smart enough. You're not smart enough to go to college. Right. You're not smart enough to you know you, you need to start using your your head and you're not you know. I just had this idea from from those that I heard it from when I was messing up and that you're not smart enough. So people were in your life telling you this. You were you were verbally hearing you're not smart enough to go to college. Yeah, you're not smart enough to go to college and you're definitely not disciplined enough to go to the military. So you better learn how to push the shovel. Wow. And uh, so at some point without me really knowing it, I, I started believing that message. That said, when I did graduate, um, my you know, my mom's husband was pretty much you got to go. And uh, I was still messing up and now progressing into uh, uh, getting in more trouble. Um, you know, the, 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 the nail on the head was uh, getting high with somebody one time. And then me and two other guys hatching the idea to rob all of his guns. And so we robbed like five rifles from him and it was supposed to go to someone else's house, but they chickened out. So I ended up saying, I'll take it to my house, hit it in some big trees in the front yard. <clears throat> and then some guys came uh, uh, and, then, and, then, and then later on, the guy realized his guns were gone and he went to the other guy's family and pretty much they were going to call the cops. So he calls my house and says, um, hey, if you don't give the guns back, they're going to bring the cops over here. So we're on the front porch and, and my mom's like, do you have their guns and his family's out there? And I'm, I'm denying it and I'm calling him a, a rat and everything else for, for bringing them to my family. But in the end, I didn't want the cops to come over and there was a big bush in the front yard and and no one could see that five rifles were hidden under there with all the shells. Oh, my goodness. So finally, like we're going to have to call the cops in. I said, here, man, take them. And my mom sees me pull out these rifles out out of the 
out of a bush. And then her husband comes out and they're just like, what are we going to do with you? You, you got to move. You got to go. Mm. So I ended up moving with an uncle and uh, a little bit south in a town called Madeira. He came to pick me up. I was supposed to work the summer with him. I'd been up for a day and a half on meth. And I tell him, uh, you know, hey, I got to be honest with you. I'm up on meth for for a day and a half. And um, he says, "Uh, how long you been doing it? Do you got any on you right now? I said, yeah, I got about, you know, a quarter gram on me or half a gram on me or something. And then he pulls over to McDonald's and I'm thinking he's going to have me, you know, throw it out or flush it or, or, you know, beat me up or something. But he says, you know, cut us a line. So, so the next wow. three month run with him. And then, um, so I they sent you to your uncle's house to get right. And now you're doing lines of crank with your uncle. They didn't really send me. It was a uh, me, me. You got to go calling him up and telling him, Hey, I need a place okay. to go. Can I go? Okay. And then he was a pretty successful, uh, glazer. So I asked him if I could go okay. and, um, and learn his craft, you know, and we went on a three month run after that. And mm. I eventually had to move from there and I moved with another aunt. Thank God she had a, a pretty awesome, uh, husband who was an upstanding citizen, worked for PG E for 30 years. And, he told me, you need to go to military. You ain't going to go. You ain't going nowhere at the pace that you're at. So he took me down to the MEPS, took the test, uh, failed it to get into the Air Force, scored a 44. They're like, you can go to the Army, Marines or the Navy. <laughs> uh, I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. And uh, so they gave me a, a practice exam, studied for a month, gave me another month to get high. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so I studied uh, the body well, really studied. I kind of went over it for a month and and halfway studied yeah and uh, went back and tested at a 66 and took off and joined the air force and um so i mean the air force was good and boot camp was great tech school was great went to lineman school to become an electrician but i got i did the stupid thing and didn't go didn't choose to go out of the country or to another state i came back to california and when you mm. come back to California, what do you do? You want to come visit family in your hometown and right. connected with those old, those old dealers. Right. And, uh, and, and, uh, ended up using while in the military and, mm. and, and was still drinking on a regular basis. Now, almost every day, there's a kegger in the dorms almost every day wow. of the week. And, uh, would so- you say the military is kind of its own fraternity, right? I mean, they, they party. I mean, I've heard, uh, and I'm sure they have a recovery core or recovery community in there, but like talk about that a little bit, if you can, like about the military, was that hard to, I mean, it must've been easily accessible, right? Oh, it was, I mean, you're not supposed to drink under 21, just like the law, but imagine, right. um, imagine a block, uh, with four corners and dorms built, uh, and then in the middle, just this big park. And in any one of those dorms, there's multiple keggers going on at any at any given night. So you can you can you can get drunk every day. And I mean, I'm we were we were getting drunk five days a week, six days a week, and uh, go to work, put on your uniform, and that was just the culture: drink, smoke. And eventually, I started getting meth from from hometown and bringing it and introduced to one person and another person. And then we had a core group of about seven people getting high on a regular basis. And they do tests, but it's random. You know, I never got tested. And um, so eventually, though, I did get separated for underage drinking. I got caught underage drinking four different times. So that was enough. They had enough of me. Um, That was one that was that was one that you couldn't hide. Yeah, I could not. I could not. I mean, the the, the, the funniest one was uh, we all decided to stay home, uh, stay in the dorms for uh, Christmas Eve. 
and Christmas, I think, and we're all in there with gallons of this and gallons of that, you know, whiskey, oh. Canadian mist, smoking cigarettes, playing Sega. This is in 90, uh, Sega, Sega, 90, 96. <laughs> For those listeners out there who are uh, yeah. a little younger, uh, Sega, just imagine a, a PS five, uh, with about maybe five pixels. So yeah. yeah, originally Sega was, uh, I guess every system has its own person like Nintendo's Mario, Sega would be like, um, what's that little guy that spins Sonic? That was Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic believe, Hedgehog. So. Yeah, that's so funny. Sega Genesis. Yeah, the anyway, game that we, we were playing was a uh, hockey. There's about seven of us in the dorm. Yeah, person's over age, and our first first sergeant and lieutenant decided to do a good thing and go to the dorms for those airmen who didn't have families to go to. They were going to uh, take us peanuts and candy and and hot cocoa and they came in our dorm and it was a, oh. a haze of smoke and oh. uh, alcohol uh cigarettes and and weed and and uh so we were all in trouble and that was another article 15 confined to quarters dock of pay Man. so eventually i got separated i was ashamed to tell my family i didn't tell them for a while i ended up so you got that discharged was, yeah i gotta get discharged okay. i i ended up moving to the town that was in a uh, vandenberg air force base and it's in between Santa Maria and Lompoc, Santa Barbara County. I ended up staying in Santa Barbara County, had a, got a, had a girlfriend, moved with her to North Hollywood and um, just kept, kept getting high, kept drinking and drugging and uh, went to a, a rehab for five months. Um, my dad moved from San Diego. I was doing good in the rehab, uh, no drinking, no drugging, no smoking, no cussing, no nothing. It was a Christian rehab and it was the first time I was ever introduced to Christ. It was the first time I was ever introduced to the gospel. I was at my, I had hit rock bottom, called my mom, called my grand, she called my grandparents. And it was the first time that they ever found out that I, the, the amount of, uh, uh, criminality that was in my life and the, and the drinking and the drugs. And I told them everything. And, and they said, we're going to find a rehab for you, but they weren't going to pay, you know, $5,000 a month. One of these, you know, plus sites, they're looking for that one that was, that was free, you know, and, and, uh, rightly so. And the only one that was free was Victory Outreach. And it was, a, it was yep. a Christian men's home. And the only thing I knew about Christians back then was, you know, I, I used to call them a bunch of holy, holy weirdos. They just seem to have this smile that never goes away. That smile that, <laughs> that uh, uh, you know, that I share today. But <laughs> and Victory Outreach is no joke, dude. Uh, yeah, they're pretty a, uh, frontline soldiers. Work. Yeah, it's a working program, man. Like, you're going to work. <laughs> yeah, I was at the car wash, excavating houses. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, you name it, they put you to all kinds of work and you got to get up at five 30 at six uh, uh, to get up, wash up hour of prayer, hour of Bible study. Um, um, uh, the whole program is structured and strict till nine, 10 at night. And, uh, it's, you know, it's what I needed at the time. And, and they, they had told me, you know, a lot of things about, um, of Christ. And, you know, I, I was a self-proclaimed atheist at the time, mm-hmm. but I knew that I had hit rock bottom. I had tried everything. And um, so it was like, why don't you give Jesus a chance? And I did. And, and I, I believe that he He changed me, saved me. I began thinking different. But I had a dad who came from uh, San Diego, like, hey, I got a house out here. Um, we're, 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 um, we're partying. I mean, uh, he says, uh, you know, your brother's, you know, in high school still, your sister's out here working. She just graduated. Why don't you come live with us? I'll get you a job. And um, I left. I left the, the the covering of God at the recovery home. And I went back to a place, you know, where it, we, we had, there was 
a loving family, but everybody got high and drank together. Mm. And that wasn't what I needed. How old were you at this time? I was 20 years old. 20? Still young. So, I mean, um, we probably probably bought a, you know, maybe a pound of weed a month. And, um, you know, it was everybody, you know, as a family got high together and drank together and it was just a way of life. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, do it, do it at home. If you're going to do it, do it at home. But mm. eventually for me, that leads to going and finding meth. Whereas they weren't using meth. They just, you know, have their beers and have their weed and kick back, you know, before it was uh, legalized and all. And, and, you know, now it is, and maybe that's more common, but but back then it wasn't. And uh, but for me, I get high and start drinking and I go find meth. And it wasn't uh, about three and a half months later before um, I'm using, I'm selling and uh, uh, I'm, I'm doing burglaries to support my high. And eventually uh, I get attempted murder, home invasion and uh, get myself a 25 years to life sentence in prison. And just a litany of crimes um, and uh, finally get get arrested and. And I think most people think that it was the nineties too. They're giving out life sentences like candy. And I think most people think, well, it's your first offense or you graduated from high school or, or you were in the military and don't they think, take all those things into account. And the truth is they don't. What, what matters is, are you guilty? And in California, they have mandatory minimums. I was guilty. Uh, Guilty as can be. And the mandatory minimum says you're going to get 15 to life plus all the other, you know, mm-hmm. I had other other charges on there: possession, possession for sales, possession of paraphernalia, uh, assault, causing great bodily injury, assault with a you know weapon, you know, you name it. And um, and you're still 20 at the 20 time when you're facing life in prison. Facing life, nobody in my family had ever been to prison, and I thought maybe I'd get. They're like, and and for my family, they're pretty. You know, in spite of everything, they have pretty uh uh a healthy respect for law enforcement and anything. Just tell the truth. If you just tell the truth, you know, maybe you'll get, you know, five years or something, you know, you, you're definitely not going to get life. You're a good kid overall, but the truth is if you tell the truth, you, you put in your death knell, you know, ask for a lawyer. Don't say anything. I don't care how long they keep you in the interrogation room. And uh, I uh, took that advice and I told the truth and it was my death knell. And so um, I went to court and the last day of the trial, they offered a deal for 25 life. If not, I would have probably got 15 years plus another 40 on top of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, so at 20 years old, 1998, wow. um, taking 25 to life and learning that I would not get a parole hearing date until 2021 of December. Mm-hmm. And so I shouldn't even be out, be out right now. I've been out two and a half years now, except for wow. prop 57 which uh, was passed a couple of years ago, which allowed incentives, uh, time credits. And mm-hmm. so I was sentenced to 85%, but uh, Prop 57 kicked us down to 80% and then also allowed time credits for those who got an AA degree or a bachelor's degree or an alcohol and drug counseling state certification. All those would get six months off. So I was able to get to board at, um, in 2018 instead of 21. Is that a, a California or is that like a federal? It's a California law. thing. It's oh, okay. thing, definitely. So before you go into like the, uh, the, the docket numbers or um, uh, as far as like laws real quick, if you can just briefly, I'm just wondering what that was like. I mean, I don't think you didn't even jail time before that you went from straight from there to prison. Correct. Or was, have you been to jail before 15 days in the farm in Santa Barbara for possession right. of meth and a cellophane? Right. right. 
So you're going straight to prison and then to level four, you know, level four, you know, you go straight to a level four yard. So I'm guessing, uh, was that, was that, uh, you don't actually, you don't even have to say that. So look, forgive me. You don't have to say where it was. Level four is a really high, high. Uh, how would you describe that to our viewers who haven't done time? What does a level four prison consist of? Level four is where it goes by points, correct? Points. So level one would yeah. be minimum security people that you see on TV, like in fire camps and, you know, um, level four is the highest security, um, towers, guns and towers, guns in the chow hall. Um, most people there will die in prison hundred years to life, uh, 50 years to life, 200 years to life, six, 700 years. Probably the, this is a very, you're not, you're not in a daycare. You're in a very active prison. You're oh, right it's now. active. It, it, you're, you're in it. You're in and you're out. Uh, it was actually the first place I ever went to. And it was at Calipatria way at the bottom of California. Um, and it was the first time I saw death and I saw the desensitization to death. I remember being on the yard my first uh, month there and seeing a guy um, playing soccer and came, someone came behind him, slit his throat and killed him right there in the soccer field. Wow. And what was shocking to me was, you know, I knew I had heard stories that level fours were like that. People get killed. What was shocking to me, they went to the video camera. Everybody gets they say yard down, you lay on your stomach, everybody's laying on their stomach. And because it wasn't uh, racial based, it was it was the same race. They looked at the video camera, found the person who did it, took the body off the yard, took the guy off the yard and then said, resume yard. Wow. And everybody got back up and started playing handball and basketball. Like it was a car driving by and you're playing football in the neighborhood. Game off, game on. Yeah, and it was just right back up like nothing. And then 20 years was, old. It was there that I heard, you know, a few minutes later after somebody's murdered, you might hear, hey, what's for chow tonight? Wow. Um, just a desensitization to to even something like murder. And I'm 20 years old now, 21 years old, thinking <laughs> this is this is 1999, 2000. And I'm thinking no, it was actually 1999. And I'm thinking, man, I got to go till 2021. How am I going to survive? How am I going to survive? It's <laughs> madness. While you're in there, um, you know, you were still obviously you found uh, a way to use um, and we kind of want to get to like where what what brought you to your point of recovery? Obviously, I know you a little bit before our viewers. Can you kind of tell a little bit what was leading up to your time uh, in prison, access to drugs and alcohol? And what was it, Richard, that kind of did it for you? And then your accolades after you made the decision, if you can. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I was trying to fit in. I was get in where you fit in. That's, you know, that was, the, that was the thing. Uh, um, how am I going to make it? I was never a jumped in gang member, but being from Southern California, if you're from Southern California, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be locked in under the Southern umbrella. Um, and, and though I did live in the central Valley, I was living in San Diego and born in Bakersfield. That's part, that's part of the, the South. So, um, you're under the umbrella and you're expect things are expected of you, uh, no matter what. It doesn't matter. You, there is no saying like, I don't want to do it. It's the same for whites. It doesn't matter. Um, um, you, I want to change my life. If all hell breaks loose, you're expected to get involved or else there's consequences. You may get jumped, you may get stabbed, you may get murdered. Um, and so um, my, I ended up moving in the cell with uh, one of the shot callers on the yard. And uh, little did I know he was a major drug dealer and he had probably a ball of heroin this the size of a little smaller bigger than a tennis ball a little bigger than a tennis ball smaller than a softball another golf 
golf ball wow. size balls of uh, cocaine and meth. There wow. was a chaplain there that was bringing it in. Mm. And um, and then we went on lockdown because of a big riot with the with the, with the blacks. And um, so we went on a seven month lockdown, which means you never leave the cell except for once every three days. Seven month lockdown. Yeah. That's intense. Seven. I've never I've never. That was the most jail time I've done. And you were on a seven month lockdown. Yeah. That's uh, that's, that's on, insane. I've been on 10 and a half month lockdowns, another 10 month hmm. lockdown. I have friends that have been on one to two year lockdowns. Pretty much what that means is you're in the cell 24 seven, except once every three days for five minutes, you put your hands outside the door, you get handcuffed, and then they bring you out in boxers and uh, shower shoes with your shower roll tucked under your arm. They take you to the shower. You step into the shower, put your arms back out. They uncuff you, wow. shower for five minutes. And then you put your hands back out and then they handcuff you again and go back to the cell. That's the only time you see it. So we all come out of there looking like ghosts during that time. I didn't know it, but, um, um, looking uh, like, like me, <laughs> yeah, <definitely>. everybody, <laughs> My, Jesse's complexion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, definitely. uh, so you're, you're with this guy, you have all these substances and it's just probably taken off. Now you're like, you got nothing else to do, but that. Yeah. He asked me, you want to get high? And I, and, and he asked, I never used heroin in my life. So for definitely with the cocaine and Coke, I wanted to do it. But then in there, mostly everybody uses with needles. And I never put a needle in my arm before. I had smoke meth, did lines. And for the first time, you know, he's like, you want to try it? And I said, yeah. And a lot of it was I was afraid to try it, but I also wanted to fit in. I also wanted to make it. I also wanted to survive. So and um, so I, I, I did it. And next thing you know, that's uh, for that whole lockdown we started slamming. We went from once a day to three times a day, 10 times a day. We were doing Belushi's. We were doing, you know, heroin every day and Coke and meth sometimes with it. And, um, it was about somewhere, um, after about six and a half, seven months of using, uh, already addicted. Um, I, uh, we did this batch that was super strong. And uh, immediately we could tell that it was too much. We did Mm. way too much and it was too strong. And we were both on the verge of death. And I remember him laying down. He was a big guy. And he all he could say over and over was, don't let me die. Don't let me die. I don't want to die. And I'm thinking, how am I going to not let you die when I can't even move? I've somehow managed to climb to the top of my bunk and I was barely leaning over. And, you know, if if you've ever been around heroin addicts, they get that frog in their throat. And you're like, now I remember saying, you all right? Are you all right? And then I was, I was on the verge of death myself. I would feel my heart. I could feel it beat. And then it would stop for like a minute or not a minute or two, but like maybe two, three seconds, but it felt like three seconds, but maybe it was two seconds, but I was like, man, here I am. I'm going to die as a drug addict in prison. I'm going to die. I felt my family. I felt myself. I felt society. I hurt and harmed so many people. And here I am. My family's going to get a phone call that I died as a heroin addict in prison. My cell is on the verge of death. I'm going to go to the hole because he died. And and um, so in that moment, I recalled, you know, I was a backslidden Christian. And I recalled, you know, my faith and the, and the freedom that I had in those five months. And I just called out to God and I, I, and I said, God, I don't want to die as a drug addict in prison. And I prayed, I prayed to Jesus. I prayed uh, uh, to the father. And I said, um, um, please help me. If you, if you help me, 
I won't use anymore. If you can get me out of this level four, I won't use anymore. Please help me to get out of here, get to a, a safer place. Um, don't let me die in the night, please. You know, I was begging. And I remember we had on BB King on repeat. Uh, uh, the thrill is gone was on repeat live from San Quentin prison. And the thrill was definitely gone. Like the thrill was I thought, gone. I thought 25 to life was rock bottom, but this was another rock bottom. Wow. And um, so um, the next day I told my Sally, I'm not, uh, I'm not using no more. I'm done. And he said, come on, man. Yeah. Right. You ain't done. I said, no, I'm done. And uh, I'll tell you that it's, it's been now over 21 years. June 10th uh, is my uh, sobriety date over 21 years. Uh, I recovered, recovered alcoholic addict. I did you made, go you back. Made a decision. You made a decision in your cell uh, at prison that day. You made a decision and you talked to your higher power to God and, uh, you haven't looked back since then. No, I haven't. Wow. And I just uh, took a stand in there. 22 years old. It's kind of rare. It was dangerous. But I took a stand. I went to other shot callers and I, and I told them I, I'm done. I'm, and I'm um, giving my life back. So you had to go make them informed. You had to go to whoever was running your crew or your that gang at that time. You had to let them know and get permission. Is that correct? Yeah, you, you let them know and then they'll, they'll give you their it's different for all different uh, races and all different parts of the state. But for mine, they, they, they pretty much say, all right, go. Um, but don't let us catch you drinking, doing drugs, gambling, uh, uh, fighting. Um, don't hang out with us. Stay over there with the Christians. Don't ever come around. Don't let us, ever let us catch you slipping, because if you do, it'll mean your life. Wow. And, it, and it's pretty serious. So. Um, I told the line, I started taking, um, um, correspondence courses, going to church, yeah. uh, learning about the Bible for the first time I ever, I set some goals. I set a goal to read 500 books. I set a goal to read the Bible 40 times, just some outlandish goals of things that I'd never thought I'd do. Set a goal to go, set a goal to go to college. And, um, and I'm happy to say, you know, by, by 2009, I had got my AA degree. Um, Come on. I graduated a valedictorian with a 4.0. You got your AA degree and a 4.0 in prison. And this is from the person I really wanted to key mark this, uh, who was told they weren't smart enough mm. uh, as a kid by his family, who was told that you better do something. So I just want to yeah. point that out. Yeah, you more than doubled up from that 1.7. <laughs> Good job. And, I, and I'll tell you that it was a mindset. It wasn't until after 10 classes mm. uh, when I, you know, most, a, most people who right. do an A degree and A degree is two years, right? Uh, you told me you had to do like one unit at a time because yeah. you were nervous. So first three semesters, I only took one class. And the, then the sec next three semesters, I only took two classes. And that was because of that mindset that I could only, um, that I could only, um, uh, that I wasn't smart enough. And when I got my first Man. day, I thought, is this a legitimate college? And when I got my second A, I thought, um, you know, <laughs> is this one of those paper mills? Let me ch let me check out this college, you know. Am I really accredited? Yeah, is it really accredited? I checked it out and it was. And then I thought, but isn't but that horrible, Richard? Isn't that horrible that those words had such power from years ago that we doubt ourselves 20 years later based off words that somebody told us? And yeah. I'm the same way. I was I was called and said certain things as a child that I'm still affected by today. It's insane. I just want to sidebar that and that we're not we're not the sum of what people say or their words, man. I just want to shout out the person who's listening, who has been affected by words or was told something when you were little or young that you couldn't do. You can. I want you to know you can. If I can, if Richard can, if Candace can, you can. I just want to. Mm -hmm. I get a little. I get a little fired up. But anyway, thanks. Right. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Yeah. Well, I just also too, I mean, I love, 
I love that those are options within the prison system. I mean, you know, I think that our, our system needs some improvement for sure, but I mean, for some people that can be where you find exactly what you need to succeed in recovery and succeed when you're released, you know? So it's really nice to hear this positive story that like you did have some time to reflect in there and you had the opportunity to not only set goals, but achieve goals to set yourself up for when you were released. Um, And, you know, I know that you've gone on to have success since getting out of prison. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, But, you know, I know you're still kind of talking a little bit about your story. I'll I'll give you the, I'll give you the one minute version of the rest. Yeah. You were, you were taking, you got your BA and then. Yeah. uh, I went on to get a bachelor's degree with a 3.82 started my master's program, um, uh, you know, three classes away from getting an MBA. I ended up getting wow. a state certification as an alcohol and drug counselor or a KDAC uh-huh. one. Yes. And then I got my hours and got a KDAC two Come on. Um, in, in California, that's 6,000 hours. And, um, and, you know, continue to read the Bible, teach, um, started it with crop organization in 2010. And we started an AOD program on the inside. So you started off doing this while you were incarcerated. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that was the crop organization and crop organization. My, my, my best friend, Ted Gray and his dad co-founded it and they funded it. They funded an alcohol and drug counseling program that, that allowed 33 of us with AA degrees to, to become state certified alcohol and drug counselors. It was, we received the certificates of recognition. Uh, let's see back back there. You see that Senate certificate on the other side over here. Let me see. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, from, uh, Senator, uh, then pro Tim, uh, uh, Daryl Steinberg, who's now the mayor of Sacramento. Yep. Um, we received that recognition for starting that alcohol and drug counseling program on the inside. And is and that the same program that Lisa Ling came in to visit? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, yep. So nice. Yeah. So yeah, we uh, on the on the on the other side of me over here, we wrote a book called uh, "Men Built for Others," and on the inside, and and it's eleven transformational stories of the most powerful transformational stories of our friends that were on the inside. We ended up teaching against toxic masculinity and what it really means to be a man, wow. uh, how mm-hmm. you live and how you love the character that you live by loving and receiving love and living for causes that are greater yourself. Mm-hmm. We sought to transform the culture of prison from criminal to responsible through our programming. We created a vision building class. We became transformational coaches and, and went through a coaching program for a seven year period. And then, um, and then came time for us to go to board. And, and I went to the board first out of anybody else. And um, explain what the board is real quick for our listeners. Yeah. So anyone sentenced to life, there doesn't mean they're going to get out. They have to go before a board. Uh, You know, someone can go in with seven in life and get out after 35 years because they don't never change their life or do what it takes to get out. Um, And there, and there are people like that. So you have to go before a board of of, uh, commissioners that that are appointed by the governor and they take you through a grueling process to see if you're really uh, suitable to live as a citizen society. Only 2% of lifers. Yeah. And 2% of lifers are, are found suitable at their first hearing. I was one of the ones um, to get a date, got out in March of uh, 2019. Wow. And so you're doing 22 years and you're out. And now you're, you're just did 22 years behind the wall in the toughest prisons uh, while receiving AA's bachelor's degrees and starting this crop organization while you were in prison. And now you hit the gate and you're out. It's just, I'm just like, I couldn't even imagine uh, getting released, Richard, after that time. I know, yeah. like from Sega 
to, I mean, did you see PlayStations when you got out? You're like, what the heck? They go to iPhone 11. Smart, yeah, yeah. From Nokia's to, uh, to smartphones. Yeah. Yeah. When I first went in, the, the they had barely came out with a DVD player. When I oh came out, no one DVDs. Yeah, Holy what's moly. a DVD? It's yeah, they're yeah. like obsolete now. now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating Red to think about. Like a, yeah, it was yeah. a t- whole nother world. Candace, you're drinking that clean cause cup. Uh, I came to Sacramento yes. because that's where we decided to our to uh, yep, clean cause. We that's where we decided to um, start our organization here in Sacramento. Never lived here before. Went to a transitional house in South Sac and uh, heard about clean cause. Uh, gave them a phone call. Shout out to yeah. Wes at Clean Cause, who was actually, we just had a recording with Clean Cause mm-hmm. before this for our listeners. And Clean Cause is a uh, clean option for clean energy drinks. And 50% of all the proceeds go to people who want to get in recovery. And so just a cool thing real quick is that I had no idea Richard was directly affected by Clean Cause. So when Richard, you got out, Clean Cause, they're their company actually paid for you to get to transitional housing when you got out of prison. Is that right? They paid my first month's rent. Crazy. What are the chances of that? Yeah. So, yeah. We just know. interviewed Shout Wes out to last West week. So that was not planned, but yeah, it's one of the few definitely. times I could say been there, done that, got the t-shirt, literally got the clean cost. T-shirt. <laughs> That's right. So, so you got out. So, and uh, the chairman of crop organization, uh, Mitch Gray, uh, who's uh, my best friend, Ted, Ted's co-chairman now, he, um, on all, on all of our team are now out and uh, they got out about a year after me. And um, so a little bit about crop, my first job with crop was to start a podcast. I knew nothing about podcasts. I didn't hear about podcasting until six months before my release. And I read a little 80 page book on how to do a podcast. And that was just one of our ideas. They get the podcast up and running, uh, interviewing current, currently and formerly incarcerated people, sharing their transformational stories. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we started. You know, today the, our podcast is called The Prison Post. We've, we've had 52 episodes. We've had over 400,000 views. We're YouTube creators now. And we're on all social media channels under The Prison Post. So, Prison uh, Post, everybody. The Prison Post, YouTube. Yeah. Where else can they find it at? Uh, Twitter, uh, prison post at prison post one, um, um, uh, Instagram, Facebook, prison post, but, uh, Apple iTunes, uh, Spotify, Google podcasts, you know, Stitcher radio, whatever, any of the major podcasting platforms, you'll, you'll, you'll see it there. And, um, we've had some powerful guests on now we interview also directors, people like yourself who are movers and shakers, difference makers, world changers in, in, in criminal justice reform or restorative justice or social justice, um, people who, whose lives are transformed. Hmm. And um, so we have a lot of powerful stories on there. Um, love to introduce some of our, some of our former guests, my friends to you guys who are also in recovery. And um, but crop organization is a, is a nonprofit organization, 501 C three. And today our vision is to put uh, justice involved people, formerly incarcerated people to work in tech. And so we have a one year program and, and people who are justice involved or formerly incarcerated, justice involved, the difference there is they've, they've, they've been arrested before. They don't necessarily have had to been in prison. They could have been in jail or just been arrested. And so they'll come to our program and um, they will get three months of leadership development training, which we know is needed for formerly incarcerated people. You guys know 
uh, working for, you know, young people in recovery, that if you wanted to go and get some leadership training, you might have to spend $3,000 over a weekend or $5,000 with John Maxwell or $10,000 with Tony Robbins. So yeah. it's, it's, it's not for the middle or poor, you know, people coming out of prison, uh, you know, they don't have the money for that. So they'll get three months of leadership development. And we, we start off with leadership development because we believe that mindset is important to get to the rest of our program. You're going to need a powerful mindset. And, yes. um, and a responsible mindset. And so we, we really, uh, you know, we press in there. Then they'll get three months of digital literacy training. And we've partnered with, wow. with LinkedIn Learning. Uh, and they go through a, a program called IC3 Digital Literacy Training. Wow. And then they get three months of financial literacy training with Beneficial State Bank. So our program associates who like participants, they meet on Zoom from 530 to 930 every night. And, um, you know, part of it is leadership development. Part of it is financial literacy. Part of it is digital literacy. And then the next three months of the program, we partnered with an organization called Climb Hire, H-I-R-E. And they learn outbound and inbound um, tech sales. And these are careers where for after six months, after they graduate from the second half, they'll go into careers making sixty-five dollars to $90,000 a year starting. Wow. And the reason why we are, we are going there because a lot of we talked about earlier my mindset you better push a shovel. Um, um, they're, they're the 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 state um, the staff on the inside perpetuate this idea that people who are incarcerated the best that they could do is get out and work a construction job or gardening landscaping or work in a restaurant and we just don't believe that most and even the incarcerated most of us believe that the ceiling for who we can be and what we can do is just right here when in reality it's wow. a thousand feet above us about above that I above that. We just need, just like with college, it's not about our ability. It's about our willingness. Are you willing? The ability is there. You know, today with crop, not only do I host our podcast, I, I run our website, design, make the changes to our website. I'm self-taught. You know, I've had some mentors who taught me self-taught. Today, I run all 11 of our social media channels, uh, write all the posts, write all of our podcasts, the designs, our color schemes, everything like that. I knew nothing about any of this kind of stuff and couldn't imagine in my wildest dreams that I'd be doing that stuff. I've spoken at right. the Capitol five times before the Senate, before the assembly worked on legislation. And, um, and, 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 and today, you know, we're going to be taking people through our program and they're going to be graduating, getting starting jobs in tech. We partnered with Oracle wow. and Dell. And so it's really exciting to, to have people come out. You said uh, Intel. Uh, Oracle and Dell. Oracle and Dell. Wow. Yeah, Dell donated all of our laptop computers. And these are people that are uh, in our program who, you know, they work an eight hour day job. They've, they've been incarcerated before. And then they get on from Zoom from 530 to 930 at night. Some of them have wow. five kids, three kids, um, and they got babies on their lap, but they're pushing through and they're making it happen. Why? Because they believe in themselves now. And that's why that mindset piece is very important. What an incredible, what an incredible success story. I mean, you know, while we were sitting here and you're talking about your experience in prison and the access to drugs that you had in there, um, you know, on the inside, I'm like, my heart is breaking because our society sends people to be incarcerated in order to, you know, restore you to justice. Yet you're in there and you have uh, the authority figures actually participating in bringing the substances that are just going to perpetuate the problem. So being able to hear your story of redemption and kind of like finding, like making the decision to quit using, finding 
the path that you needed to sustain your recovery. And then coming out on the other side and creating opportunities for people to make something out of themselves um, and being able to kind of start that path while they're incarcerated. So thank you so much for what you do and what the crop organization is doing. Um, and crop, I don't, I don't think that we touched on this crop is an acronym, correct? Yes, it is for creating, like you said, creating restorative opportunities and programs. And that's mm -hmm. what we do. And, and, and a lot of people don't know this Candace, but you know, in, in California, I know you're in Colorado there and uh, we got a good story about Colorado too. I could share, but in California, they put the R after CDCR, California Department of Corrections. It was what it used to be called. Then they put California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. So you would think that uh, rehabilitation is the goal. But if you read their Title 15, punishment is their goal. Prop mm -hmm. believes in investing in people over punishment. Okay. Right. There's a $16.9 billion budget in California right now for their corrections. Only 1% of that is put programs. towards rehabilitative workforce development programs to tra train, uh, train people to come out here to work. And, and only 3% of that is put towards rehabilitation in general. In my 21 years, I was never touched by their rehabilitative program Man. because uh, a part of that, a third of that goes towards their GED program. I already had a high school diploma. A third of that goes towards their vocational training program. I didn't go through any state vocational training programs because crop organization put me through their AOD counseling program. And that's not connected to the state. And a third of that goes towards the mental health department for insight therapy and things like that. And I never was in the mental health department. So 21 years, never being touched by the rehabilitative uh, uh, aspect of it. And three of a 16.9 budget and costs 140,000 a year, supposedly to, to incarcerate someone. And the majority of that is people with GD started at, uh, you know, 85, $90,000 a year. Wow. Yeah, I think that's something uh, a lot of people, just general public, don't understand. You know, when we talk about like alternatives to incarceration um, and restorative programs, there's a handful of people that get frustrated, um, you know, that maybe don't really understand the whole concept of substance use disorder or how people and circumstances uh, can lead to that. But, you know, people argue the money and they don't want their tax dollars thrown at it. Uh, and it's like your tax dollars are going there. They're just not really being allocated effectively. So let's kind of think about some effective programs that will actually provide some uh, some value to your community and bring people back in and be contributing members of the community and just help improve everything overall. So that's that's yeah. So of the sixteen point nine billion, you said about one percent of that is put into restorative services. Um, and that's crazy because you would think like we, the goal would be rehabilitation and to create persons that upon release uh, get back into society and also uh, to destigmatize de even parolees. Like there are people who serve their time. They're now members of society and then to be treated as such. And especially making sure they have the tools equipped to contribute. We should want success on all platforms, including parolees here in California and nationally, uh, to reintegrate into society. So I think you and the crop organization are doing that. I think just by producing what you're doing, uh, and also a big part of it, you said too, is hey, look, construction's great, uh, but let's break that stigma of oh, if I can just you know 
bang a shovel out when I get out, I'll be content. Like the ceiling's so much higher. So I think uh, I thank you for for uh, setting that tone and for providing resources for people starting in prison. Um, I mean, just to just I'm baffled. I've heard Richard's story uh, probably five, six times now, and it just continues to like bless my heart hearing your story uh, from life in prison to uh, that day you said enough's enough, your 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 recovery date. Uh, and then the accolades you've done to get where you are now and to reach back. And now, like I said, you're working with the capital, with legislation. Uh, you're, you're contributing to your community. I, I couldn't think of a better success story. And I know quite a few people uh, than, more than yours, Richard. And so uh, it is just a privilege and an honor to continue to uh, be friends with you and see your success. Uh, I know you give I know you give credit to your pathway of recovery, which is uh, your faith in, in God and uh, I such I admire that so much. I, I I have a God relationship myself, and so uh, I'm just so proud of you. You're actually uh, shout out to you. You're going to be getting married soon. Uh, I'm super proud of you, man. And uh, oh, I know you're, yeah, I know you're excited for that. And I know our I know our uh, our friend who you're marrying. I just couldn't be happier for you both. It's just so exciting to walk to see you guys walk through this together. And uh, I'm just so happy for you. When yeah. are you getting married? In October. Come on. This October, like that's her in the background up, up there, and uh, her two sons. Oh, and... yep. Wait, October what? What's the day? Sixteenth. <clears throat> yes. Oh, okay. So yeah. by the time this comes out, I think you're gonna yeah. have been married for a few days. It'll be hitched. Yeah. And, and 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 that could be something that you you all interview people out in in, in the future. I mean, coming out after 21 years, uh, doing all my 20s in there, all my 30s in there, and and getting out at 41, finding mm-hmm. out. What is the, what is the kind of relationship that I hope to have in the future? And for mm-hmm. me, it's somebody who's also being of service, somebody who's also a, a, a recovered alcoholic and, um, you know, has sponsees and has uh, meetings and, and, and a sponsor and is a mover and shaker. And it feels good to to have somebody who loves being of service and who just mm-hmm. doesn't I don't want anything to do with a codependent, you know, relationship mm. and, uh, so, you know, she's, she's an amazing, amazing person. I'm so happy for you and finding her Spanish motorcycles outside. Um, uh, I know we are, uh, we're kind of coming towards the end. I do have, uh, I have a, one last question for you, but I actually have a second question. Um, I'm just curious. How did you ask your wife to marry you? <laughs> About. She 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 took me to Pacifica. Have you ever been to the Bay Area in San Francisco? I haven't. I've spent some time in Southern California, like Orange County. But well, um, she grew up in Pacifica, and there's this cliff um, uh, at the ocean, and she calls it her God spot. She goes up there to pray, mm. read, and it's about I don't know 500 feet up, uh, overlooking the water. And so I uh, got a ring, um, and. And then we took a trip out there, invited some friends and just told everybody that it was, uh, um, you know, just to go. Up. I told all my friends who I was going to ask her to marry me. So oh, we they knew. That, OK. We went up to that spot. And uh, if you ever go to my Facebook page, you could scroll back to December 12th <laughs> of uh, 2020. And um, and there's a recording of it. And so we had it recorded and create a video and uh, got on one knee up there. And, ask her right on that cliff uh hmm. you know 
10 feet to the right, we would have lost our lives. But uh, right, on that cliff, <laughs> right on that cliff, got down and just told her, you know, I love you, admire you, you inspire me. Um, I love the way you love people. And I love the way you love God. And I love the way you're of service. And I've never found anybody that I've been ever happier with in my whole life and, and the way she loves me. And if you find that, it's rare. Yeah. Uh, so wow. she's a beast. She's a beast in recovery. Uh, I won't. I was like, hey, watch your mouth, Jesse. <laughs> beast, beast. She's a beast in recovery. She helps a lot of women. We'll keep her anonymous, Aww. but uh, I know her very well, and she's just helped mm. so many women in the community. So it's so awesome. Oh, my little heart's melting right now. So Aww. just thank you for sharing that. Um, I just think that's that's really cool. I mean, you were looking at life in prison and. You met the girl of your dreams and oh that's on that, that's on that cliff up there. That's oh that's just precious. Oh my gosh. Well, thanks for sharing that. And yeah, I wish you and your new family all the best. So um with that said though, uh we like to close every episode and ask our guest, what does recovery mean to you? What does recovery mean to me? It means uh, it means staying uh, staying sober, and it means living as a way of being, as a lifestyle, actively being of service, mm. as if there was nothing else that you could do. So serving, uh, and, and I'm sure you know this. Jesse knows this. You know, we put in long hour days, giving, give, give, <laughs> give till it hurts. Yeah. Being of service to help others because. There's an old saying that says idle time is the devil's playground, right? <laughs> you're just sitting around right. focusing on you, poor me. And, you know, mm. when you're being of service, you don't have time to focus on yourself. You have time mm. to focus on others. That's good. And um, so being of service and not thinking that at some point, like I've made it, it's been 21 years, right? And I still go to, I still go to meetings and I still have a sponsor and I still talk to, uh, uh, still try to help people who are struggling with alcohol or drugs. There's, we're the ones who can reach out to them. So if, if we're just trying to act like, oh, well, now I got a good job and a well-paying job and I haven't drank in 21 years. And, you know, why don't I just get back into this other life of, um, of normalcy and not um, sharing my story on that no more. That's not going to work for me. And so it means uh, continue to love those who have similar struggles, being of service and staying sober. Nice. Yeah. Got to give it away to keep it right. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. Awesome. Richard, uh, thanks so much for being here. Uh, and before we close, uh, again, I just want to allow you and the folks listening, uh, if you have any agency platforms, you want to shout out uh, the book, the book name again, your podcast, any friends that you think you might want to shout out where people can find crop or find your friends or uh, anything you want to put out there, go ahead and do so. Yeah, I want to put out, first of all, that I love your guys' show. love the opportunity. You might have to turn this into a two-part series right here. Yeah, right. But y'all are onto something with this. Um, there's a lot of podcasts out there, and I, I just look forward to to sharing yours when you guys come out with it, you know, spread it in our so yeah. on our social media channels. You can find our website at croporganization.org. Um, it is an acronym for creating restorative opportunities and programs. 
Um, and we have a YouTube channel where you can see some of our policy work, some of the work we've done, and even out uh, uh, some work out there in Colorado, uh, uh, Candace. Okay. And, uh, so, um, um, yeah, you can find us on YouTube at Crop Organization and our, and our podcast is on YouTube at The Prison Post and on all mm-hmm. other podcasting platforms. Yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Facebook, Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs and the prison posts. And pretty much that's the standard. You'll find a link tree there. Link tree is just one link that you click and then it'll show like 11 different ways to find us. Nice. So find us, hit that red subscribe button on YouTube. And, um, and, and I'd love to have you guys on the show one day as well. Heck yeah. And what was the name of that book that you guys, you and uh, about 12 inmates wrote? Uh, to, what was the name of that? Yeah, it's called Men Built for Others. You can find it on Amazon. And uh, there hasn't been anyone who's ever read the book who said they were able to read through it in a dry eye with a dry eye. It is very (laughs) emotional. It is very raw. It tells the story of of our mindset while incarcerated and also transformational stories of 11 people sentenced to life. And all of them are now free and thriving out here. Nobody has ever recidivated who's gone through our program. Not one person's gone back. And um, so. What? Yeah, never. That's like. That needs right. to be shouted from mountaintops. That's like 100% success rates you guys right. got going on here. Yeah, it's crazy. And um, so it's an amazing book. Most people, they, I, even my own sister said, I never read a whole book uh, in one setting. And most people read it in one or two settings. It's wow. engaging. Wow. So well, go out I'll there. look forward to reading that. Yeah. Get out there and get the book on Amazon. Check out the Crop Organization. Check out my friend Richard Morales. And we're so happy that we stole him from Southern California. He's in Sacramento now. Yeah. Uh, couldn't, couldn't be more honored uh, to be your friend and your brother in recovery. Uh, just thank you so much again, Richard, for taking time out. Uh, once again, guys, I'm your host, Jesse Hayner. And I'm Candace Rose. New episodes are available to stream every other Wednesday as early as 5 a.m. Eastern time. You can tune in on November 3rd, where Julie Salter, who is a woman in recovery and now a personal trainer and nutrition coach, uh, she joins us to share her story and talks about applying some of what she learned while in active addiction to support her professional success in recovery. So kind of using that Jedi force for good. Uh, So definitely, yeah, tune in tear from her next time but as always here at ypr we do recover and we are in your corner thanks for listening